0: This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host, Laura Kessler, comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point, I'm Laura Kessler. Over the last six months, we've been discussing the AIM syndrome, anti-Semitism, Israel phobia, and the miseducation of our youth, And one name that keeps popping up each month cited by Pascus, is the work of Dara Horn. Dara Horn is an author's author, a superstar regarded as brilliant even by other best-selling authors. And she's young, which means we have many more decades of her creativity and brilliance to look forward to. But today, I don't want to only talk about People Love Dead Jews, which is the international best-selling book that's dominated her life for nearly the last two years. Following Dara's example herself, I want to jump back in time and include a bigger picture that goes all the way back to a book she wrote 15 years ago about Jews in the Civil War, and draw some parallels to present day Jewish unity, if we can, as well as the future of Jewish education and Holocaust education. It's my thesis that Dara is a special kind of thought leader that's so deeply needed at this time, and I want to appreciate her from all angles and hopefully inspire others today by her example. Dara Horn is the award-winning author of six books, including the novels In the Image, The World to Come, All Other Nights, A Guide for the Perplexed, and Eternal Life, and the essay collection, People Love Dead Jews. One of Granta's Magazine's Best Young American Novelists, she's a recipient of two National Jewish Book Awards, the Edward Lewis Wellant Award, the Harold U. Ribolo Award, and the Reform Judaism Fiction Prize. And she was a finalist for the J.W. Wingate Prize, the Simpson Family Literary Prize, and the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Her books have been selected as New York Times Notable Books, Booklist's Best 25 Books of the Decade, and San Francisco Chronicles' Best Books of the Year, and they've been translated into 11 languages. Sarah's nonfiction work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Smithsonian, the Jewish Review of Books, among many other publications, and she's a regular columnist for the tablet. She received her doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature from Harvard University and has taught courses at Sarah Lawrence College and Yeshiva University. And has held the Gerald Weinstock Visiting Professorship in Jewish Studies at Harvard and lectured for audiences in hundreds of venues throughout North America, Israel, Australia, and we're so honored to have her with us today. Welcome, Dara.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I know this is a very busy month for you, so thanks for being with us. Oh, well, I'm really um, happy to be here. So, Dara, I want to start with how your Jewish identity began when you were young and what sort of inspired your own personal journey as a writer and thought leader in this area?
1: Sure. Um, well, this was always part of my life, uh, my my mother has a PhD in Jewish studies, and so I'm you know <laughs> kind of that was a like a family business in that sense. Um, but you know I grew up uh, invo- very involved in the Jewish community where I'm from, which is in New Jersey. Uh, I was a Torah reader in the junior congregation in my synagogue starting at the age of 12. Um, so this was something I always was uh, involved in, and but, but I but in terms of being a writer. As a writer, my subject is time, and this fascination started when I was very young. I remember being a small child, and I would get into bed at night and think about how the day that had just passed, I would think to myself, you know, this day that just happened is gone now. Where did it go? And I sort of Mm -hmm. developed this obsession with stopping time, and for me, from when I was a child, that was what writing was about. It was a way of preserving lost time. I wasn't inventing stories, and I wasn't that kind of writer. Uh, When I was growing up, I was, you know, obsessively keeping journals and notebooks and not to explore my own emotions the way somebody might, you know, keep a diary, but really just as a record, and I sort of – I really became obsessed with this. And I realized at some point that, you know, I I didn't think this was unusual – to have this kind of obsession. Because in my family's traditions, I discovered thousands of years worth of people who also had a similar obsession. And to my wow. mind as a child had kind of solved the problem. Um, there's so much of Judaism that's about uh, activating a historical consciousness. Um, we think of, you know, um, we, we're supposed to think of ourselves as if we personally came out of Egypt. Uh, We're supposed to imagine that we personally stood at Sinai. Um, There was sort of this whole, uh, so much of Judaism is based on this sort of elaborate rituals of reenactment. And so that was one aspect of it that I found intriguing, although I wouldn't have had the uh, language to articulate that at the time. And the other piece was that I was really fascinated um, as a writer by sort of the intersections between literature and and religion, the ways that storytelling reflects beliefs. Again, I wouldn't have had the language to articulate this then, but I felt really really fortunate that I was, you know, coincidentally born into a culture that has so much reverence for books that, I mean, we dance with books, we kiss them. Um, You know, there's sort of, it was a great place to be as a writer. Mm -hmm. So, that was sort of, you know, the beginnings of my work as a writer. And, you know, when I was uh, getting, as I got older, I, I learned Hebrew um, w- largely on my own or out of my own initiative. I went to public schools, but um, I started taking uh, like an old pond class at the local JCC when I was a teenager. Uh, it was mm-hmm. actually an adult education class. And, you know, I didn't realize I was about 15 years old and, and everybody else in the class was retired. I didn't realize, you know, that's who takes adult education classes. Um, So, you know, that was, I learned, you know, it was like me and these retirees learning Hebrew. And my Hebrew was good enough by the time I got to college that I could, I was majoring in literature and I was studying Hebrew literature. Um, And I just kept looking for this sort of interconnection between literature and um, religious texts and sort of the ways that secular and religious literature intertwine. And that took me, down this sort of rabbit hole toward the beginnings of the revival of Hebrew. And so I had started out studying Israeli literature, and then I kind of moved back and back and back in time until I hit a point where I was reading works by writers who were writing in Hebrew before Hebrew had been fully revived as a spoken language. And I found that I I sort of hit a wall where I couldn't understand what these writers were saying, uh, even if I knew every word in the sentence. And eventually I realized that my problem was that these were writers who were writing in Hebrew but they were thinking in Yiddish. So at that point I embarked on learning Yiddish and you know really just to further this like kind of bizarre intellectual exploration that I was doing not you know to talk to my grandparents or anything like that. I, I should I mean my grandparents actually were all born in the United States. I'm a fourth generation American. My kids are not only fourth fifth generation Americans, they're fifth generation Essex County, New Jersey. Um, so you know, this is, this wasn't so. My interest in Yiddish wasn't from some like you know old world nostalgia. It really was from this sort of academic exploration. Um, but then I continued. I did the PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew, and at some point I was reading all these works by these writers who were writing in Jewish languages, and I just became incredibly jealous of these writers because, well, I wasn't jealous of their lives, which were mostly kind of horrible. But I was jealous of the language they were using because every his, every language really has an archaeology of belief that's built into it that Native speakers often don't even hear. If I said yeah. you in English, right, if I say you to it in English, you know, this will happen for better or for worse, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm quoting the Anglican marriage ceremony, but I mean, that's what I'm doing. You know, there's this archaeology of belief that rises to the surface every time somebody sneezes. And right. in, in Jewish languages, there those kinds of that layer of assumptions and texts that go into just everyday language, those, that layer comes from the Torah, from the Tanakh, from the Talmud, from the Sidur, from this sort of whole edifice of Jewish texts. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the writer who's using this is religious or not. I mean, you know, some writers are dealing with these language consciously in that, or playing with that, some are less so, but it's just part of the language. And there was this depth to it that you could get all these sort of nuances of of, of time and, you know, in this sort of whole historic continuity in a sentence. And I just sort of had been feeling this sense of, of American Jewish culture seeming um, very thin when I was growing up. And, and I sort of felt mm-hmm. like there was, you know, not a lot of content and depth to it. And at some point, I... I sort of realized that part of that, or to me, in my opinion, a huge part of that is due to the lack of a Jewish language. And I started writing my novels with this sort of mission in mind of turning English into a Jewish language. And what I mean by that is not that I was going to write a book with a bunch of words in italics, but rather that I wanted to write books that were drawing from this sort of archaeological layer of these Jewish texts but in a way that any English reader any any English language reader could understand. So that was sort of the task that I set for myself with my novels. So I don't know how 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 deep in the rabbit hole we want to go here, but that's oh, no that was no, how I it's, started it's, you know, working as a Jewish writer.
0: It's fascinating. I can just see you as this precocious little girl. Your teachers must have loved you. <laughs> um Oh no.
1: And... Oh no, I was definitely a pain in the neck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, they even loved you Yeah, at some point my at some point <laughs> my
1: parents were like uh, uh my parents my mother came up with like some old envelope filled with like my report cards from you know second, third, fourth grade and oh the teachers are all like Darren needs to learn self control. You know. Basically my problem was that I didn't shut up. Like I was out of control in <laughs> classroom settings. So literally, uh, I, became, I became a good student when I was older, but yeah, no, when I was when I was a child I was a pain in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would might say I'm old back, but yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: the, the, the drama of the gifted child. That's what they should read. <laughs> I I appreciate what you're talking about with with language, and I think a lot of our listeners do. I and mean, when I was growing up, my dad was an English and Spanish teacher, and he talked about you know with Yiddish. There's just, just things you can't understand unless you're in the language, and that's especially true with Yiddish. So. Your trajectory is very interesting, and I'm just curious how old you were when you first felt that Jewish culture in America was sin, using your expression.
1: Well, it was something I thought about a lot because of my mother's experiences in, um, you know, in in her work. Um, you know, my mother had done a PhD in, in Jewish education, and then had a hard time finding a job in Jewish education because there just wasn't this culture of excellence at that time. Um, And that was, you know, that was like really discouraging. There was sort of like, um, uh, there was a kind of a complacency I felt when I was growing up. So that was part of it was there wasn't this, you know, there wasn't an interest in, you know, high caliber kind of organizational work. And, you know, I remember a lot of sort of disappointment with the organized Jewish community that came from my mother's experience, but also from my experience. I mean, I remember going sort of these, you know, very disappointing Hebrew school type programs and things like that. Um, but also, you know, I remember wanting to read Jewish literature. And, you know, when it's 1992 in New Jersey, and you tell someone you want to read Jewish literature, they hand you a book by Philip Roth. And I mean, that was just not what I was looking for. And I mean, obviously, there's plenty about Philip Roth to, to recommend his literature. But his depth of knowledge and awareness of Jewish culture is not one of those things. Um, You know, it took me a while until I found Cynthia Ozick, who was really, you know, one of the only writers of that time, who really was diving into the content of Jewish civilization and was incredibly talented. Um, You know, so that was, I mean, there weren't a lot of writers who were doing that at the time when I was growing up in English. And, you know, at the point in terms of understanding the language and, and seeing that as a loss, I think that came much later with learning Yiddish. Even though I already was learning Hebrew, but Hebrew I was associating with you know Israeli culture. And learning Yiddish and sort of seeing how different Yiddish culture was from this kind of kitschy, nostalgic version of it that was presented in American Jewish life at that time. Uh, that contrast was really obvious and really glaring, where the popular images of Ashkenazi life were, you know, sort of these like the fiddler on the roof kind of sad sack, nostalgia kind of images Mm -hmm. as opposed to, as opposed to this like flourishing intellectual culture where, I mean, and and I now understand the whole psychology behind why there was this sort of condescending attitude toward that, but it was kind of astonishing to sort of really read read Yiddish literature and discover the, you know, the enormously high caliber, and then to really feel that loss. And when I say that yeah. loss, I don't mean, oh, so sad, all these people were murdered in the Holocaust, because this stuff is, I mean, the stuff I was reading was from way before that period. No, I'm, I'm, and I, I mean the loss, the loss of the language in the United States, and, you know, looking at and thinking about how and why that happened, and ways of, of building what that, so the, the richness of that culture, and, and trying to figure out ways that I could contribute to that.
0: Yeah, I want to get into that. And and firstly, just think a notable aspect of your biography is that you went to public school. You went through the Hebrew schools and all of that. You know, you did not go to a yeshiva. So you saw, for better or for worse, the strength or weakness of what Jews going through the public school system would get. And so I think it's all the more uh, amazing that, You've gone on to do the things you've done, and actually i would I would think having that perspective has helped you greatly.
1: Well, I think that um you know i I give credit to my mother here for you know really understanding how to give me and my siblings a Jewish education without uh, relying on a day school and and I'm honestly doing the same thing with my children. My children attend public schools um, and there it is it is something that can be done um, in terms of giving someone a high quality Jewish education without sending them to a Jewish day school, but it requires an enormous amount of effort and, um, and resourcefulness, which my mother had. Um, so, I mean, and I should say that, you know, I, I did benefit from American Jewish institutions other than a Jewish day school, because yes, I went to, you know, a synagogue Hebrew school, which are famous for, you know, uh, notoriously, or don't teach people much, but, um, I, I, I was the exception, and I actually did learn a lot in this particular program. And then um, we also, my siblings and I, went to um, the, there was a high school program at uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. We used to drive, in to, drive into New York City every week. Uh, it was like an extra day of school for, on Sundays from like, you know, 9 to 2 or something like that. Um, and then they had a satellite program where we would go in the evening in New Jersey. And uh, I went to Camp Ramah for many summers. I went to, uh, I spent a couple summers in Israel. Uh, one was with uh, Alexander Moss High School in Israel, uh, which is a program that's, uh, actually my daughter just did it last year, uh, that's now run by JNF. And uh, I also was, I participated in something called the Bronson Youth Fellowships in Israel, which was, um, it actually is a program that sort of was designed to sort of uh, cultivate future Jewish leadership. So I I, I am a I'm not like a self I don't claim to be a self made in my Jewish education. Um you know, I very um very much benefited from those structures and, you know, American Jewish institutions that were in place at that time. Um you know, that, that said, you know, that was only because my mother had the ingenuity to sort of seek out those programs in an era before the internet and sort of know what was there, what was high quality, what wasn't and to sort of sift through that for me and my siblings. And obviously most parents aren't in a position to do that even now with, you know, more information.
0: And this ties in so much to things we've been talking about previously with, with Elect and Masha Markalova especially about, you know, who, whose responsibility is it to teach the next generation and how, you know, we used to have the Shtetl model where you just through osmosis learned about your Jewish identity, and then when we came to America, it became a corporate model, uh, very separated, and the federations did one thing, and you did your culture in another, and and th- that's good for the infrastructure, but it's also maybe watered down the culture a lot more. So it feels like in a lot of your books, you're trying to sew that back up and reclaim some of the things lost through some of that assimilation in the last hundred years, especially? Uh,
1: Short answer, yes. But also, I would say that this situation is not unique to America and, well, not not unique to the Jewish community in America. Also, I'm sure you could talk to people from other minority communities that have similar, you know, it's a similar challenge. Um, But I also think that there's this idea of sort of trying to you know, um, reclaim things from an assimilation situation. I, I actually think that that is Jewish tradition. I don't see Jewish tradition as this continuous uninterrupted chain back to Sinai, although, I mean, there's one argument to be made for that. I actually think that the tradition itself is one of loss and renewal, loss and reclamation, destruction, and creative resilience. And I think you see that even in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I remember there's a, uh, there's a particular story that, I, that I, I kind of love from the Tanakh about um, King uh, Josiah, I guess it's called in English, Osiyahu. Um King Josiah is, is renovating the temple in Jerusalem. And basically, while they're redoing the bathroom grout in the temple, they discover a scroll. And they're like, Ah, oh, what is this scroll? we've never read this scroll before. You know what the scroll is? It's the Torah. And Mm. they're like, we've never read this before. Oh, look, in this Torah, in this scroll, it says that we're supposed to celebrate this holiday called Passover. Maybe we should do that. And then they're like, yeah, let's do that. And um, then actually the text says, and that year the people of Israel celebrated Passover, which they hadn't celebrated in 400 years. I mean, we can complain wow. about assimilation in the American Jewish community, but we've celebrated Passover during the last 400 years. Okay, anyway,
0: here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I get it completely. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, so yeah, I want. Let me shift gears now. For anyone in the planet that hasn't read *People of Dead Jews*, let's give them the basic synopsis of what it's about and why you wrote it, and then we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Uh, Yes, people love dead Jews. I still can't believe my publisher let me keep that title. Uh, the, it's a yes. It's um. It's a collection of essays that are about the role that dead Jews play in a wider world's imagination, and the book takes you through many different situations and circumstances, but and and you know historical periods and it's around the world and different contexts. But the arguments it makes are pretty much twofold. One, the first argument that runs through the whole book is that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And the corollary to that, the second argument, is that living Jews have to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. And I, in the book, I basically walk the uh, walk my readers through a number of different situations in which this dynamic is is at play. Um, I don't know to I, I give an example, just sure to frame yeah, the, the idea I'm talking about. Sure. So, and this is actually the 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 story that got me started writing this book. If you want to hear the how I wrote the book, I don't know if you want to go there or just uh, yeah. yeah. Go for okay. Well, so I mean, so I mentioned I, I spoke before about uh, my novels and and or or about how I started you know uh, writing some uh, Jewish literature and the way I think about that and it was always very important to me to explore Jewish civilization and share it with my readers and also with my students when I was teaching, to share this civilization from the inside. Like, I was never wanted, I never wanted my work to be about, like, what the world had done to the Jews. I wanted this to be a way of giving readers a way to access this sort of Autonomous civilization. I mean, to the extent that any civilization is autonomous, but like, you know, to be like, learn about Jewish culture from within. And I was so passionate about this that when I would speak about my books in public settings, you know, like I'd do a, an event at Barnes and Noble or something like that, I often would ask my audience, how many people here can name three concentration camps? And that's something that a lot of people in Barnes and Noble can do. I would then ask those same people, how many people here can name Three Yiddish writers. A lot fewer people in Barnes and Noble can do that. But the reason I ask that is because if we you know, if you think about the history of the Holocaust, 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. 80% is a famously literary culture. So by asking that question, I'm really asking, like, why do we care so much how these people died if we really, really don't care how these people lived? Right. You know, and I now look back on that, and I, and I did this for 20 years. I mean, 20 years of publishing these books and teaching on these topics. And I think that I did not realize at that time the the sort of enormous role that dead Jews play in a non-Jewish world's imagination, and that sort of started coming unraveled for me uh, a few years ago, which goes to the sort of the story that started this book. Um, in 2018, I was asked by Smithsonian Magazine to write a piece for them about Anne Frank. And I got that request, and I was overwhelmed with dread because I just thought, like, oh, God, I don't want to write an essay about Anne Frank and how wonderful and pious, blah, 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 humanity, For and then, then that essay is going to be distributed in doctor's offices across America because, you know, that's what happens to Smithsonian Magazine. I, I just thought, like, ugh, I don't want to do this. And so the normal thing to do would be to turn this assignment down. But I'm a writer, so, you know, I'm not a normal person. So instead, I'm sort of thinking, this is interesting. Why don't I want to do this? And that is when I saw, when I, or I should say, and that's when I remembered a news story that I had read a few months earlier. And again, this was in 2018. And this is a story that people who have read the book will be familiar with this because it's in the first chapter of the book. It was a news item about something that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam in 2018. And I love that for your audience, I don't have to spend five minutes explaining what the Anne Frank Museum is. And the incident that happened was there was a young Jewish man who was working at that museum, and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He then appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board of the museum then deliberated for six months, and then finally let this guy wear his yarmulke to work. And I just remember reading that news story and thinking, you know, six months is a very long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And at that point, yeah. yeah. I mean, and then, you know, and then I was thinking, like, you know, did this really happen? Like this news story I read a few months ago, did I dream it? So I go look it up and like, no, not only did I not dream it, but something equally stupid had happened at the same museum a few months earlier in 2017, where visitor, at which point visitors had noticed something weird about the audio guides. You know, it's a big international museum. They've got 10 languages for their audio guide. And there's that place where you, um, where they have that sign that shows all the languages they have. And it says English and there's a British flag and it says Français, And there's a French flag. Until you get to Hebrew, Hebrew, no flag, no flag. <sighs> and, you know, I thought, and and then, you know, and I should mention, I mean, the museum has, like, since corrected these these mistakes, except what you realized that that, or at least what I realized at that point was, like, you know, these might be PR mishaps, but they're not mistakes. And so then I right. went back to, yeah, I mean, they're not mistakes. And then I went back to uh, Smithsonian Magazine, and I said, you know what, I will write this piece for you. And uh, the piece I handed in was probably not what they expected, because the first line of this piece is, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. Then that's the source of the title. So, I mean, I, you know, I wrote, so I wrote this piece, and, you know, I kind of thought, and so that's, so that story is sort of like, you know, that kind of epitomizes those two elements that become running themes through the book, which is, you know, people tell stories about Jews, dead Jews that make them feel good about themselves, you know, like, oh, Anne Frank this is this epitome of the beauties of humanity or whatever, and living Jews have to erase themselves in order for that story to be told.
0: You know, it's normal that certain things are more valuable after the originator is dead. Paintings are more valuable. A lot of things are more valuable, but it's different in this case. People, they sometimes fetishize. And there it's almost like we've divorced lessons of the Holocaust and what's going on with current anti-Semitism and anti Zionism. There are other people that still want to murder all Jews, and we're talking pure annihilation. And there's no connection. They're, like, in different silos to a lot of people in the way they think about, teach, and talk about it. And I think you raised such an important point, and it's sure it's difficult to hear. I'm sure you had to have been in, like, Facebook jail or something with people misunderstanding uh, some of the terms, I'm sure. But well, somebody, like, tried you know, to,
1: my book was, like, on a banned book list somewhere because, you know, people got spooked by the title. <laughs>
0: yeah, or not sure. dance, well, you know,
1: some challenged or whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to get people's attention in an attention economy. That's just the reality of it. I mean, I think to, to people who don't know, of course, they're going to raise an eyebrow, but it's, it's something, it's a difficult but necessary conversation. And I think you're really good at bringing that up. I mean, you've been a successful novelist for 20 years, but the success of People Love Dead Jews has taken it to a whole new level. I'm just curious how your life has changed in the last two years. And also, what have your readers taught you that has surprised you? Well, so a
1: lot of things. Um, yeah, basically, in the this book came out in the fall of 2021, and, and this book kind of ate my life. Um, I, you know, have... Found, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm still sort of speaking about it in, you know, multiple places every week. Um, I'm, you know, called upon to participate in a lot of different things that I wouldn't have expected to participate in. Um, I'm, you know, I was part, I was asked, uh, to participate in the White House, uh, you know, this combating anti Semitism task force. I was one of the people who gave input for that. Um, I, I'm doing, I've done like, DEI for Google. Um, I, it's just a sort of a bizarre. Um, it, it's a bizarre kind of situation. Oh, I was I I was invited to the Vatican. I actually wasn't able to wow. come. I, I turned down the Pope. <laughs>
0: um, oh my God.
1: <laughs> there's been a lot. Of, yeah. There's been a lot of weird. Um, you know, it's 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 been very you weird. Know, I've also you know had the situation where. Events of you know I I had an event that was where somebody tried to kill was trying to kill me at the event and you know there was like a credible threat to the wow. event, um yeah so I mean and like you know I'm I'm not as famous as Salman Rushdie but somebody still wanted to kill me so, um, I mean like I guess you know I you know you when uh yeah when people try to kill you or try to ban your book or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's some kind of insanity that is ensued in that sense. Um, but it's actually been really amazing for me just to hear from different readers' responses to it. And I actually have seen kind of a, there is a sort of a bifurcated response that I've gotten from this book from readers. And I will admit to you that the depressing part of it is the response that I've gotten from Jewish readers. Really? And, yeah. Um, because ev- what I've, what has happened since this book came out is that I have been inundated with responses from Jewish readers. So either people contact me online or through email, or you know more uh, even most often, like at events where I when I speak publicly, you know people even will write me snail mail letters. And the Jewish readers who are responding to this book are all sending are all saying to me exactly the same thing. And it doesn't matter like these are old people, young people, religious people, secular people, people from the United States, people from other countries, people from small communities, people from large communities. All of these people are writing me exactly the same message or telling me in person exactly the same thing. And it goes like this. I felt uncomfortable my entire life, and I never understood why. Your book articulated this for me. Thank you. And then they say, I never told anyone this before, but. And then they tell me some horror story of something that has happened in their own life, like their own experiences with anti-Semitism. And then they say, thanks for writing your book. And sometimes they say, can you help? Mm. One of my sisters said, um, one of my sisters told me, uh, she said, Dara, it's like you've become the anti-Semitism (laughs) Lorax. It's like, yeah, I and mean, also I'm about as effective as the Lorax, too, right? I mean, because, you know, I mean, it's like, I, I feel very overwhelmed by this because, you know, I mean, and and especially at first when this first started happening because I'm like, you no, know, first of all, I'm not a therapist, um, you know, and I'm like, I feel like I've become like this receptacle for the pain of the Jewish community. And, well, you, you know, that's been really, really difficult because, I, you know, I, I don't entirely know what to do with that. Um, so, I mean, and I can tell you, details of all these many horror stories. But what was striking about it was that, you know, these are horror stories that, you know, are not necessarily, they're not making national news. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I've discovered is how little makes national news. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, can, I can tell, I don't know how much I want to bore you with this, but um, I'm going to give an example of, um, I spoke last year in Columbus, Ohio, and I was speaking at a synagogue there, and the, the rabbi of the synagogue picked me up at the airport, and he said, I'm taking you to lunch with some other people who are involved in your visit, and I wish I could just spend these 20 minutes in the car chatting with you and getting to know you, but I need you to know what you're walking into. And then he told me how there had been a threat to the K-12 Jewish Day School in Columbus, Ohio. Um, The perpetrator of this threat was arrested the night before, as this rabbi said to me. He was arrested the night before. We in the community just found out about it this morning. This was someone who um was advertising his intentions to um to shoot up the school and murder the parents in the carpool line at the pickup. And I was like, wow, that's really horrible. And then the, he says, No, that's not the horrible part. What's the horrible part? Who was this person? He was the security guard at the school.
0: It's terrifying. I even our things like that. So that's
1: like, you know, yeah. which, you know, there were local news stories about that. Um but, you know, other stories that were just like Stories that don't, like, make it onto, like, an FBI hate crime list. I mean, it was just things like that, you know, harassment at work. A lot of stories of people who are being who were being harassed at work or taunted, you know, uh, taunted and harassed at work. Um, students were being harassed at school. Um, I, can't get, I couldn't get over how many people are getting pennies thrown at them in 21st century America. Like, I thought that had died in 1952. Apparently not. Um, that mm-hmm. was, you know, all. I mean, this is, what's amazing to me about all this is, I mean, I wrote this book as an intellectual exploration. It wasn't really about my personal life, but what I discovered well, for my Jewish readers, this is an emotional experience.
0: Oh, ab- absolutely. And I mean, you're you're not an activist. You're an you're an author. You're a novelist. You're Correct. a storyteller. <laughs> but you've jumped into this, and you know, the I mean, the not fact intentionally. But, but you know, if, and we've talked a lot on my show in the last six months about this stuff, about all these things. So none of this comes as a surprise to me. And Tammy Rossman Benjamin has been talking about all the things happening on campuses. And, you know, in the Stop BDS on Campus group, they do constant action alerts for things i think a lot of people have never heard that are happening on college campuses that that never make the news and you're saying the quiet but I'm part even talking out about and...
1: stuff that like stuff that would never make the news under any circumstances i'm talking about things right, like right right you know someone who's being iced out by their mother-in-law yeah you know and and you know taunted by relatives someone who's when they realized the boyfriend was trying to convert them you know, then broke up with the boyfriend. I mean, you know, the person who, this couple that was telling me, you know, we've been friends with this other couple for 15 years, you know, our, we consider them our closest friends. And when our son was born and we invited them to the Bris, you know, they told us that this was appalling and then they haven't spoken to us since then. Wow. I mean, things like that. I mean, you know, that's, you know, thing, those sorts of things. Um, which are sort of just like a daily occurrences um you know which are not even something that is gonna you know you're not gonna these are not things you're gonna like report to the a d l um I remember one woman who was telling me how she had converted to Judaism the year before and had a group of friends at work who um you know she always would have coffee with every morning and then, you know, that morning, it was a Monday morning, she, you know, they said, Oh, how was your weekend? And she was so excited. She's like, I went to the mikvah on Sunday, I just con- you know, I just converted to Judaism. And she said, this person I considered a friend who I've been, you know, having coffee with every day for the past three years, said to me, Oh, you're Jewish now? Can I have a dollar? And she's <sighs> like, Wow, I've been Jewish for less than 24 hours. <laughs> And here we are. She's like, it's just the beginning. <laughs> so it's
0: just like, because you know, it's it's, it's baked like in the culture, that, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, baked into the culture, and there's no sensitivity to the same degree there are. And there's like a plausible there deniability,
1: are. you know, a plausible deniability to all of it. Yes. Um, I remember an, an actor in Los Angeles who told me that after she read my book, she said, you know, I've been going to auditions for three years. Every time I go to these auditions, they tell me that I look too Jewish for this part, even when it's a Jewish part. And she said, now I'm a voice actor. That person, I clicked through to That's her website it. and see what she looks like. She's gorgeous. She's like, wow. now I'm a voice actor. I, I'm not I, surprised. Know, there's so many things like that that, you know, you can't, like, again, these are not things you're going to, like, be on some hate crimes list. It's just like a this sort of deep cultural problem. And anyway, so that was something I well, learned you... from my readers. Um, but I also learned yeah. something from my non-Jewish readers, which was, um, you know, maybe a more positive side of the story. So I don't know if we want to go there or if you want to continue with this one. Yeah, no, we we, we need some positives here. So yeah, so super depressed from everything I hear from my Jewish readers. But what I actually find encouraging is what I've been hearing from my non-Jewish readers. Um, I should say that, you know, yes, I do. I do get occasional hate mail. Um, And I've also, I've discovered all the very brand, all the different brands of hate mail, right? There's like, you know, the Something, something, white genocide. There's this something, something, Palestinian genocide. Um, there's also um, what I now call 23andMe anti-Semitism, where you know someone writes you some long screed, and then at the end they say, "But of course, you know, I, I'm obviously can't be an anti-Semite because I, you know, I did a DNA test and I'm two percent Ashkenazi." <laughs> And that's like, I guess I'm like, I guess that's the 21st century version of some of my best friends are Jewish. It's like, you know,
0: some right. of my best
1: genes are some of my best chromosomes are Jewish. Um, but yeah. So, you know, so yes, I do get that kind of thing, but I've just sort of been amazed in, you know, responses from non-Jewish readers that, and you know, yes, it's a self-selecting group of people in terms of who is going to engage with me, who's going to pick up this book. Also, but, but not, in, not entirely, though, because I've done these sort of public events, um, you know, but it's also, I guess, a choice to go to an event like where I'm going to be speaking. So it is self-selecting. But I've just sort of been amazed by how many people there are where there's, there's just a whole lot of people with a whole lot of goodwill who want mm-hmm. to be, in today's language, good allies and kind of just don't know how. Um, and, you know, I've spoken, you know, I've, I've been on Christian TV. Um, I've also been on sort of the, you know, podcasts and things for other non-Jewish minority communities. Um, and, and also just, you know, had a lot of exchanges with non-Jewish readers. And the most common response I've gotten is from people. is just sort of like, wow, I had no idea.
0: Yeah. yeah. And,
1: And also how can I help? And, you know, I've had people apologize to me for like, you know, sorry for the past several thousand years. Like I'm like, no, that's not about you. right? I'm like, uh, we're not talking about the past several thousand years about you. We're talking about now.
0: Thank you. For oh, being so, here. Some that's of the nicest. Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, it's sort of amusing, but like, you know, I, I've even had, I've gotten the letters from readers who have said to me, I'm a recovering anti-Semite. Thank wow. you for writing this book. So what this has taught me, though, is that there and and also like the other thing that often comes along with these readers is they'll say to me, where can I go to learn more? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is that there isn't really an obvious place to send these people, because the problem is, you know, people then like, you know, what are you going to do, Google Jews? I mean, I've spoken in some places where they're, you know, very far from any organized or large Jewish community. You know, the reality is Jews are like two and a half percent of the American population. Like most people are just never going to meet Jews. Yeah. And so the source of information is not relationships with human beings, right? Their source of information, unfortunately, is the Internet. So, you know, I mean, and the problem is, you know, and I've spoken about this elsewhere, and this is a little bit of a different topic. But, you know, we now have a lot of, I think it's, I forget how many, but, it's you know, huge numbers of states in this country require Holocaust education in public school. But -hmm. there's no requirement that people learn, like, who are Jews?
0: I I want to get to that. I actually have a ton of questions I want to get to. So um, you said your latest book is about finding inner outrage. And who do you hope to reach with your book specifically? Who are you writing them for the most? And what specific actions are you hoping people take after reading your work?
1: So, I I mean, I never write with an audience in mind.
0: Because I learned very
1: early that your audience isn't who you think it is. Mm. Um. You know, at the beginning when I started writing these novels, I was sort of like, you know, to the extent I, I thought anybody would read it other than my mom. I was, you know, figured, oh, this is a book for Jewish readers. But my very first reader of my book, my editor at my publishing house, which is actually still working with the same person, um, is not Jewish. And I remember she told me when she read my first novel that, you know, which is you know, very much about Jewish life and culture. She's like, I felt like I was reading about my own life and my own family. Wow. and I've gotten that response from a lot of people because I mean, literature is about communication. So you know, and and with my novels, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a polemical writer. At least I don't see myself that way. I'm telling a story. Um, every essay in this book, I'm writing it. I, I I'm not I'm not writing it like with a plan of you know, here's three things I'm trying to convince you of. Instead, I'm writing it to figure out what I think. So, you know, I'm sort of going on this journey, and I'm taking you as the reader with me. So I'm writing it because I want to know what I think. And, you know, I don't have a plan beyond that. And I no longer, after 20 years of writing books, I no longer have this expectation of, like, who the reader is going to be or who I want the reader to be.
0: I definitely yeah. get that sense from you like when i'm when I'm listening to things, I feel like i, I see it as a movie by the way. I just feel like i'm <laughs> You feel like I'm in Harbin, China with you, I feel like I'm looking at the star of the David on the floor, and you know you're just so descriptive and i I can see that where it's like a journey, and you know in many ways you sort of leave people to make their own conclusions and I think that's great, you know good art is often like seventy five percent what the Creator does, and then the other twenty five percent is what people fill in and that's that's when it becomes beloved um and but and sometimes you're giving people unpleasant surprises, but necessary in my opinion you know for example, you surprise a lot of people by telling them some inconvenient truths they didn't want to hear, like the actual story about Chevy the Milkman does not have such a happy ending like the one on Broadway, or that the legends of our our surnames being changed at Ellis Island weren't exactly true, but more a quieter uh, assimilation by our grandparents to avoid anti Semitism and and, you know different things that we things that we were protected and I actually I love the way I know you got criticized for the Ellis Island uh, stuff by some people, but I thought you handled it really really perfectly imbalanced, because at the end of that chapter, you're like, for those who who whitewashed, or I shouldn't say whitewashed, but, you know, changed changed their names. You understood, I'm paraphrasing, so help me if I mess this up, but, you know, that they were trying to give the next generation their best shot, and then you say, thank you, and I think that's, that's really so good that people understand that while you're giving unpleasant truth and and correcting the record from this you know maybe kitschy version of yiddish culture and things that we've sort of romanticized or some would even say christianized it it's okay to see it to tell the truth and it doesn't have to be ugly there's still a little bit of beauty in that as well so have i represented that you know the way you suggested in the book
1: Yes. I mean, with the Ellis Island example in particular, it wasn't uh, just the, you know, whitewashing of people changing their names, but also the whitewashing of how that happened. You know, the whole legend that we were, that many people in the um, Ashkenazi American Jewish community sort of heard in our families of, you know, oh, our name was changed at Ellis Island. You know, there's this bumbling clerk who wrote my name down wrong or something like that. And the reality is people went to court to change their names after they had been here for years. Um, So, but. So the whitewashing wasn't just we changed your name so that your life would be better. It's also we buried the story of why we did that so that you would not have to inherit the psychological trauma.
0: Mm-hmm. So, because there, there, there were signs letters, that said, you know, that there. were at that time, there were literally signs that said no Jews, no dogs. We were in the same category as dogs. You correct. know, nobody want, wanted to think that America was, we wanted to think that America was the golden place that was different from Europe. And you know, is definitely better, but, you know, not entirely different. Well, I mean, I think that, you know,
1: yeah, it it didn't, doesn't take much to be better than Jewish history in a lot of other parts of the world, right? I mean, that's a low <laughs> bar to clear. Um, but no, I mean, look, this country has been extraordinary for the Jewish community in, in, by every measure. Um, but I think that there, what I've discovered is that there's sort of, there's a whole generation of American Jews for whom, the belief in American exceptionalism is almost like a religious belief. And people get angry when you poke that belief. And, you know, people also, you know, get angry when you suggest that, you know, there's, there's this, people really cling to that American exceptionalism. And there's, yeah, a whole generation of American Jews who feel that way. Um, But yeah, I I don't really, I'm a storyteller. Like that's, and, and it's not because, you know, that's not like, oh, I'm this artiste or something. It really is just that I'm I don't know what I think right away. And I don't I'm not I'm actually don't even see myself as a person with strong opinions. I mean, I I hate arguing. I'm not good at it. I'm not like a person who's gonna win an argument at a dinner table. And I, I I'm sort of just I'm interested in learning more and I don't feel threatened by learning more.
0: That's so important there. I mean, you're an explorer and an observer, and I think that's so important now, you know, as we have the largest generation of baby boomers soon passing the baton to the next largest generation of millennials. I feel like our Generation X has an interesting role as that, you know, middle child there of just helping things smooth over there. And I, I feel like that's very much what you do and you know even if you didn't set out to be a leader you definitely are a thought leader and i think you're definitely doing that i want to talk about hanukkah anti-semitism versus purim anti-semitism i love this analogy uh can you explain what you mean by this to our audience and also what do you think we're in right now with present-day anti-semitism and your chapter about soviet support for Jewish culture was actually really, really interesting. I think a lot of people, if they're not uh, familiar with that, would find that fascinating too.
1: Sure. So in the book, I talk about two types of anti-Semitism that have you know, plagued the Jews for millennia, and I named them after the holidays that celebrate triumphs over them, Purim and Hanukkah. Purim is, you know, there's this the biblical book of Esther. There's this big bad guy who wants to kill all the Jews. It's like super clear, really obvious. But the interesting thing about the Hanukkah story is that there's no point during the Hanukkah story that anyone says, let's kill all the Jews. It doesn't come up. The goal is still to destroy Jewish civilization, but the way to do that is by making Jews not be Jewish. And then if, what ends up happening is there's this dynamic where it kind of relies on Jews erasing themselves. And the example I give from the Hanukkah story is, you know, at first the Jews of Judea, you know, there's this, um, you know, the, the um, Judea is conquered by this Hellenistic empire. And at first this sort of like this soft persuasion where it's like, well, you know, we're from this awesome Greek culture and like we're way cooler than you. And obviously you want to be part of this. And at first the Jews kind of go along with this. And one example of this is they build a, a gymnasium in Jerusalem for the Greek games And, you know, the Greek games are way beyond athletics, like this was a part of the religion, it was like the way to be a person who mattered in that society. And if you've ever been in an art museum, you perhaps recall that Greek athletics were played in the nude. And these teenage Jewish boys who participated in these Greek games, had their circumcisions reversed so that they could participate in these Greek games and i don't I even want to even how imagine how they did <laughs> i, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I'm want like, to know I'm... <laughs> of that but what's interesting to me about this story is that like no one's making them do that at that point in the history right. that's like it's it's like that's what you had to do to be a person who mattered and it's so sad you know then it's, it's 5 years later they they outlawed circumcision so the soviet example that you mentioned um is a similar dynamic um, of this idea that basically this what I call Hanukkah anti-Semitism, it requires it needs Jews to be its agents for to first of all provide cover for the society or regime that's promoting this, but also sort of to show like you know and and to to show the noble intents of the society, um, but also because it requires Jews to erase themselves. And uh, the example I give from the Soviet um, from the Soviet Union, was uh, from 1918, when the Bolsheviks are waging civil war, they're trying to take over the former Russian Empire. They need the Jews of the former Russian Empire on their side in the civil war. And one of the tactics they do is they create what's called the Yefseksia, which were the Jewish sections of the Communist Party, and whose purpose is to promote um, Bolshevik uh, ideology among the Jews. And one of the ways they do this, one of the tenets of their of this promotion of this ideology is, we are not anti-Semitic. We are just, wait for it, we are just anti-Zionist. Where have I heard and that this is before? In 19, yeah, right. So sounds kind of familiar. Except like this is 1918. It is 30 mm-hmm. years before the state of Israel. It's probably not about Netanyahu. And what's interesting right. about this is, oh oh and so they're you know so we we're not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-zionists. oh, and also you know they're Marxists, so they're also anti-religious. So basically the the idea behind the Yesexia is, you know we love Jews. We just won't allow you to practice Judaism or support Zionism or study Hebrew, but otherwise we love Jews. Uh, yeah, right. and then, of course, in the process of you know not. Uh, in the process of not being anti-Semitic and just being anti-Zionist, they managed to, you know, persecute, imprison, torture, and murder tens of thousands of Jews. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I mean, it, it, it eats itself, right? Because then these people who are in this Jewish section of the Communist Party, the rest of the Communist Party determines that, oh, those people are Zionist spies, and, you know, they end up dying in a gulag
0: also. Yeah, yeah it's hard not to think about some of what we see in the form of anti-Zionist Jews today talking about this, even some of our Jewish professors signing all kinds of petitions supporting DDS. It's very depressing to see that. And what's even worse is that a lot of people, especially non-Jews, they don't know the difference. They just think, you know, one Jew speaks for all Jews, which is totally not true. Um, You know what? I I, want to jump around a little. I know you have done DEI with Google and spoken about other things, one of the things people may not realize is that you're doing more speaking and consulting about diversity, equity, and inclusion, not training the people day after day, but coming to speak to them and tying this into what we're talking about. What sorts of things are you telling them? What's been the reaction, you know, as far as the anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism? And and also I want to hear what you think about the people who are these new participating Jews in the new Hanukkah anti-Semitism.
1: Um, well, so those are two different questions. Um, I mean, maybe there's there's some overlap, but um, you know, because there's sort of and to me there's you know, there's when I speak at a corporate event versus when I speak at, you know, let's say a college campus event. Um, you know, those are a little bit different audiences or sometimes a lot different audiences. Um you know, look. I think a lot of people in the Jewish community are skeptical of a DEI structure, um, which, you know, uh, until recently, sort of uh, did not often include Jews in the framework of minorities that we're looking to uh, be diverse with and include, or however language you want to use. Um, you know, and that was, you know, there was that was sort of. Um, Something that didn't that that wasn't included, and I I do find that now in the past year or so I have been invited to speak. I mean, as I said, I did DI for Google. I've done it for a few other uh, corporations, uh, banks. Um, I've done some like Chamber of Commerce type events in different cities. Um, so I mean, there is that that has changed. I feel. I mean, you know, look, I'm, there are people who do this for a living and know a lot more about this than I do. But I do see that I I do get invited in those kinds of frameworks and you know i think that you know you can sort of be skeptical of the framework or you can realize this is a language that we have right now in large portions of our society and if i'm not going to participate in that conversation then i've given up an opportunity so what i often will do is when i go to these events is i do bring up during when i you know when i speak about this topic i bring up the problem with with the way we think about Jews and the way we're thinking about these other bigotries. Because um, as I often uh, will say, um, you know, antisemitism is a little different from many other bigotries in that it's not a, it's not really so much a social prejudice. It may have that component, but it's only partly a social prejudice. It's mostly a conspiracy theory. And with that, that really changes the dynamic because, a social prejudice there's, is that you think that there's this group of people who you feel are inferior to you. A conspiracy theory is the opposite in that a conspiracy theory, there's a group of people who you think are superior to you. They're like these supervillains who are manipulating things behind the scenes. <clears throat> and what that then looks like is, it looks like you're not punching down. It looks like you're punching up and speaking truth to power, whereas actually you're spreading one of the oldest lies in the world. And one of the things I bring up also is that, is the critique of DEI, but very specifically, um, what I say is, you know, when I do a DEI event, I often say that, so there's the one thing about about the sort of DEI framework is that it assumes that there's this hierarchy of power. It sees sees the world through a hierarchy of, this, this worldview is looking at the world through a hierarchy of power with the idea that there's this sort of elite uh, group, there's this elite group that's sort of manipulating everything behind the scenes to the, the disadvantage of everyone else, and that our goal in trying to create a just society is to level this playing field, to take these elite people down a notch, you know, or to and to sort of you know or dismantle this hierarchy of power. And well, the reality is, if that's your worldview, you might be right. I mean, you know, if you look at the way corporations work in this country, I mean, it's ironic that I'm talking about this at Google or somewhere like that, right? I mean, I'm like, maybe you guys are the people who are manipulating the things behind the scenes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, you know, but the, so it's like, you know, if that's your worldview, I mean, there are, you know, you may not be wrong, but you're also, if you're not educated about Jewish history or Jewish culture, you're going to fall face first into anti-Semitism, Because all all the things I just said about, you know, the hierarchy of power, all of those things are the core beliefs of anti-Semitism. You know, if your belief is like, you know, oh, there's these people who are overrepresented, they have too much power, too much privilege. The core belief of uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is that Jews have too much power, Jews have too much privilege, Jews are overrepresented. And this is very ancient. I mean, this is not something this is I'm not even centuries old. Thousands of years old. I mean, this is in the book of Exodus when the pharaoh enslaves the Jews. Why does the, why does the pharaoh enslave the, the Israelites? Because they have too much power, too much privilege, and they're overrepresented. It literally says this in the book of Exodus. So I mean, you know, this is an old problem. So I kind of call attention to this, uh, the problem in the structure and the way we might want to think about anti-Semitism with a different frame. And I try to give people who are already and because the reality is like people who are invested in this like DEI structure like generally these are people of a lot of goodwill they really want to as I said be good allies and like this is an opportunity and it's an opportunity to educate people and to sort of give them language and tools to understand this problem.
0: And you use the analogy to LGBTQ. Uh, very effectively, which I, I think is uh, the greatest analogy to explaining this. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, well, first I'll, I'll tell you that this is something that I learned from one of my readers. Um, I, In my one of my sort of uh, talks that I would often give on this topic, I had a line in one of my talks where I would say that, similar to what I just said, where I, I said, you know, anti-Semitism is not so much a social prejudice, it's a conspiracy theory. I used to say it's that semitism is unique among bigotries for being a conspiracy theory, but actually one of my readers came up to me after one of my talks and said, I don't agree that it's unique because this is exactly how homophobia works. Is that it's a conspiracy theory, right? Oh, these people are infiltrating your schools, you know, they're groomers, uh, they're coming after your children. They're going to turn your kids gay. You know, they're, infiltrating the legal system and, you know, I mean, it's very, very similar. So I I credit my readers for uh, bringing this to my attention. But in terms of the analogy, uh, I often am asked, uh, there's often uh, when I speak, this sometimes in a corporate event, but much more often uh, I I do more college events, actually. So there's always somebody at a college event will ask some question in the form of, uh, oh, my professor says that Jews are white and they therefore never experience bigotry. And so the way I respond to that is, uh, I say, okay, well, there's ten things wrong with that statement. Jews are white, and they therefore never—I mean, I could, I could sit here and and spend 20 minutes and unpack all the the ten things that are wrong with that statement. But let's not do that. Let's just pretend that your professor is correct. Jews are white, and they've never experienced bigotry. I assume your professor would then also say to white people in the LGBTQ community that they're white and they therefore never experience bigotry because, you know, they can just hang out in the closet and they're fine. Like, what are they complaining about? And I find when I say this, like, you sort of see, like, people, their face changes when you or when they hear this because they suddenly realize, like, oh, wait a minute. You know, and because and because we would never say, like, an environment where, you know, where LGBTQ people have to be in the closet is an accepting environment that's not... I mean, the, the, the forcing of somebody into the closet is exactly bigotry. There's also this sort of piece of the majority legislating, um, sometimes literally, but the majority um, sort of legislating or deciding how the minority gets to act is another piece. And uh, and this is the one way I respond to, uh, you know, when people ask me about anti-Zionism. Um, and again, this more often happens in like a college setting. Uh, you know, I often will tell them sort of this history about this, you know, this idea that goes back to the Soviet Union and that sort of thing. But you know, often I get this question: Oh, can't I be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic? Um, there's some version of that statement, and or something like, "Well, you know, Jews are fine, but you know, why do they have to be Zionists? I don't understand why they need to be Zionists." And often, is ask. Like, I mean, there's these people are not heckling me; they're genuinely asking. And And I say, well, you know, could you be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic? Sure, yes. Are there people who have some bizarre way they're threading that needle that, you know, I don't share that opinion, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Jews are very diverse in their opinions. Yes, there are Jews who feel that way. But I think it's over 85% of American Jews support the concept of Zionism in whatever form that may take. Basically, the basic idea that Jews should have self-determination in their ancestral homeland. It's over 80% of American Jews who agree with that statement. And I said, so by someone outside of the community saying, I get to decide whether or not, you know, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, you know, or I get to decide whether or not it's acceptable for Jews to be Zionist. You know, the analogy I give to those people is, I assume you would also say to people in the LGBTQ community, we love you, and we're not homophobic at all, and we're so thrilled to have you as part of our community, and we're so glad that you're here, and we are so accepting. Thank you so much for being here. Never bring your partner with you in public anywhere, ever. We love you. (laughs) And, you know, that kind of, you know, basically saying, you know, I, a straight person, get to decide how you get to be gay.
0: Right. And that's totally right. fine, exactly. and that is
1: no way reflective of my bigotry.
0: So, is Ira the answer, the international definition of anti Semitism that we've been promoting a lot on our show?
1: Um, I appreciate very much the Ira definition. Um, I think that when you look at the text, it is very clear that it is not threatening freedom of speech or the ability to criticize uh, policies of the Israeli government. I think there is an enormous amount of room within that definition for protesting in whatever form, Uh, you know, I mean, anything that's going on in Israel. And I mean, you know, and and actually often what I will say when people ask me, "Well, can't I criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic? I'm like, yeah, not only can you do that, but if you're interested in criticizing Israel, I strongly recommend that you talk to literally any person living in Israel because I guarantee they're better at it than you. (laughs) <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, I do think that there's a lot of room in that definition. Um, I, I will say, though, that I, I do think that in the community, we get a little too hung up on this. Um, I think that th- I think it's a valuable tool. But, you know, is is this a hill I really want to die on? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I think that there's a lot going on with anti-Semitism now in the United States. And honestly what I've kind of discovered is how little of it has to do with Israel. I feel like ten or fifteen years ago a lot there was a lot more that was this sort of campus problem and it was much more focused there. And what I actually now find when I go to colleges is that students are coming in with already have experienced a lot of anti Semitism in K to twelve and yeah. which generally has nothing to do with Israel. And it's just kind of straight up, you know, I mean and then that's sort of what's kind sort of astonishing to me is like A lot of that, I mean, and what's sort of amazing is even with sort of stuff that goes on in, you know, in, let's say, campus circles or progressive circles, you know, I feel like it used to be, like, plausible that it was a good faith conversation about Israel, and now it's like no one's even pretending that that's what it is. And so I think that this problem is much broader. And
0: I, th- I think it's yeah. broader also, but I also think it's still a major problem with anti-Israel phobia. And I mean, I hear horror stories that if I didn't hear them directly from friends and through certain groups that were in, I would probably never hear it. You know, it's it's hard to even be educated is first of all the problem, and then everyone agreeing with the definitions is hard. Like like for example what is judaism is it a race is it a religion is it a nation i mean why is this so confusing i mean they we end up going down these rabbit holes of just defining ourselves because we don't want them to define us but then we don't always do it much better and meanwhile they're they're getting instagram memes you know bella hadid or some influencer will will get something out to their millions of followers that they have more six times more followers than there are Jews in the entire planet. You know, so we I feel like IRA is the answer because we need to just consolidate around a definition so that we don't keep going down these rabbit holes and no definition is perfect. But um you know when there's when there's fogginess on this stuff, it's used against us. It doesn't help us. It helps the people who are against us the reality is that
1: every that, that everything is going to be used against us and if you know i mean for by any bad actor so i mean the problem to me is you know like you said like you know are jews a race or jews a religion, are religion or jews a nationality like this is something else that i clarify when i speak about this topic is you know jews predate all of those categories jews predate the modern concept of race jews predate the modern concept of nationality jews predate the concept of religion i mean there wasn't even a word in Hebrew for religion until, you know, Eliezer Ben Yehuda or other, you know, sort of people who are reviving Hebrew had to like find one because like it wasn't even an, an idea. So, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, and, but, you know, every non-Jewish society wants to put Jews into the boxes that it knows best.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, the problem is Jews predate the boxes. And, you know, the reality is, you know, who are Jews? Jews are a type of social group that was common in the ancient Near East. It's not very common in the West today. It's a joinable tribal group with a shared history, homeland, and culture. Part of that culture is this non-universalizing religion. What I said is, it just now in English is a paragraph, and in Hebrew it's a word. And that word is two letters long and one syllable. Um. So, I mean, you know, just because other people don't have this mm-hmm. language doesn't mean we can't give it to them. And, exactly. you know, there's sort of, you know, and, and there's also this other piece that I've noticed in speaking with Jewish audiences, that's this kind of protective thing that people do, where Jews like to talk about, I've often sort of heard like, oh, Jews love, love to talk about anti-Semitism. And it's, what I found is actually not true. Jews love to talk about anti-Semitism when it comes from people who don't vote like them, when it comes from people mm-hmm. who aren't in their community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is it's almost like the same as the Ellis Island story. It's a, it's a self-protective mechanism where you can say, this is a problem for people who don't agree with me. I'm protected. And I, I you know, and it's so, you know, and I feel like there's, um there's a lot of institutional energy that's put into this kind of thing. So, you know, I wish Ira was yeah. the answer. I wish it was, you know, if, if I was going to pick a definition, that's the one I would pick. I wish that was the answer.
0: Yeah, you, unfortunately, you I don't on... think
1: it is. I mean, and this is sort of the yeah. bigger question: is like, what is the answer? I mean, and you
0: know, I could
1: say more. About <laughs> we're that, all
0: we're so. all turning to you, Dara, for the answer. <laughs> yeah, because I'm the Laura. right? <laughs> oh my God! Lorac. Well, that's like
1: the problem. You know, I, I never wrote
0: a nonfiction book before, and
1: so I, you know, all my books before this are novels, and I, I you know. I was kind of stupid. I didn't realize that when you write a nonfiction book describing a problem, people expect you to solve the problem by the end of the book.
0: (laughs) Well, well, you're helping us. You're helping us, you know. Oh, I mean, you know, it's just funny
1: because, like, you know, like my very obnoxious line, you know, and and people ask me this, like, you know, when I give a public talk, people come up to me, you know, they don't even come, they ask publicly, they're like, you know, so what's your solution to this problem? You know, and, like, my completely tasteless response is, you know, are you really – expecting me to give you the final solution to the Jewish question because I wasn't prepared to give that to you. You know, and that's, you know, that's my super, you know, I'm all about bad taste, but I also, um, it's weird to me that like people expect me to solve this 3000 year old problem. I am well, not, we're all, it's... <laughs> I'm neither the war Act nor the Mashiach, but I, I do actually think that there are ways that we can turn this conversation around.
0: Well, I want to tie into, um, I talked about your book, All Other Nights. And I I think there's a very good lesson that we can take from there, lessons from Jews in the Civil War. In that book, Jacob Rappaport, he's a flawed character with redemptive qualities facing constant cognitive dissonance, which sounds like a lot of modern Jews. And, you know, not unlike modern Jews, he's torn in the crosshairs regarding domestic politics. That sounds familiar, too. And I really loved hearing about how the Jews from the North and the South Managed to maintain their ties. Can you just talk a little bit about that and maybe the lesson it has for us today?
1: Sure. So, yeah, this is my novel, All Other Nights. Um, it's about Jewish spies during the American Civil War, and it's, the characters are, are based on real people. There are some actual historical figures in the book, and then the other ones are kind of based on composites of, of people who did exist. Um, and it's, you know, I what's funny is that I so I wrote this book. You know, a, a, every historical... Novel is really about the time in which it's being written. It's not really about the time in which it takes place. And I wrote this book because of how polarized I felt the American Jewish community had become I'm kind of laughing about this now because I wrote this book 15 years ago. I mean, now it's like, like what was I complaining about 15 years ago? Oh my God, what was I thinking? You're um, ahead of yeah, your time. <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, I, maybe I was, I was, I was prescient, right? I was looking into the future. Um, But yes, so you know, but what was interesting to me was that you know there was the Jewish community in 18, you know, in 1860, 1861, you know, there's a well, much smaller, obviously, about 100, 130,000 Jews in America before the Civil War. What was really interesting to me was that, you know, there were national Jew there, there were two... Okay, so the largest Jewish community then was in New York. The second largest was actually in New Orleans. You had, like, these two core communities that were in the... One in the north and one in the south, and then, you know, many other smaller communities. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, in 1860, when the country started to split there were a lot of national churches that split along with the country. So like even today, when there, when you have Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists, that dates back to 1860, you know, they had some national convention and they were voting on something about slavery and like half the delegates walked out and made their own church. What's interesting to me is that there were national Jewish organizations in 1860, B'nai B'rith already existed. Uh, there are a few other groups that don't exist anymore. None of them split during the civil war. And The reason for that is that, you know, Jews were much more mobile than a lot of other Americans at that time. You know, most Americans at that time were, you know, living in the same place their parents lived, farming the same plot of land their parents farmed. But Jews were more mobile because they were involved in businesses rather than, you know, they tended to be more often involved in businesses rather than local trade or rather than uh, agriculture. And because of that, you know, they had networks of, you know, if you have any kind of business, you know, you need a supplier, you need a distributor. And they had these networks that stretched over state lines and so when the country divided the Jews had a little bit more empathy for people on the other side than a lot of their neighbors
0: did because they knew people on the other side
1: and And you you talk about about two specific stories yeah
0: Yeah, about Um, about the Chicago Jews bringing Passover food to the prisoners and also in Tennessee can you talk about those two examples yeah that blew my mind yeah, these
1: are historical, I mean, and, and they they're I sort of play with these ideas in the book although they're you know, they're these are historical incidents where yeah, there were Jews who were bringing in the North who would bring like Massa to the prison where they were, you know, southern prisoners of war were being held. Like nobody else is bringing care packages to the enemy in prison. Um and then the same thing like when the North uh, starts reconquering the South with the army takes uh, the Union army takes over Tennessee, there were Jewish soldiers in the union army who then were welcomed into Southern Jewish homes for Shabbat and holiday meals. Like nobody else is having the enemy over for dinner. Right. And that was just fascinating to me because it's like, you know, the people really felt that there was this connection that went beyond this like, you know, nation shattering experience that, you know, what our country is still healing from. And I thought that was actually really interesting and, and,
0: That is
1: telling in a way. It sort of, you know, was that there still was this bond that was able to overcome this political polarization that, you know, to me, the the Civil War really is a story of good versus evil. So, I mean, this really was not like I find nothing forgivable about the Confederacy. And, you know, but the idea that even through this enormous moral divide, which it was a moral divide, that, that this Jewish community was still able to feel this connection and bond. And that, to me, was sort of, I mean, if they were able to do that, I mean, we should be able to get over whatever's going on in the Jewish community today.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a wonderful, a wonderful message on that. Let's talk about Holocaust education. You wrote a brilliant essay a few months ago for The Atlantic that everybody in my circle is still buzzing about. In it, you say that using dead Jews as symbols has not been helping the living ones and may even be making it worse in the 21st century. Has Holocaust education become a morality play? I want to talk about that and your assessment of the current state of Holocaust education, how we even evaluate it and what the reaction to your work has been.
1: Sure. So uh, I was asked by the Atlantic, um, this is a piece they commissioned for me to write a piece for them about American Holocaust education. And I spent about a year researching this um, so like when I said dead Jews ate my life, like that was also basically a byproduct of dead Jews eating my life, like more dead Jews. Um, I you know I spent a year researching this. I traveled around the country um, and not just like going to Holocaust museums, like meeting with educators. Meet go. I attended teacher conferences where you know teacher trainings. Um I met with the people who create the museums, people who create the um the uh, people, uh legislators who pass mandates. I interviewed those people I interviewed teachers I went into schools there's a lot of stuff that never made it into this article, even though i mean it was like ha- I-, I handed in like twice as much as they wanted <laughs> um so there's a a lot of stuff that didn't even make it in but basically and my my goal was investigating like with holocaust education was the question is it working? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's, and I go into the whole backstory of how this developed in American education, but there was this idea, and, you know, this first really began with Holocaust survivors who really were looking to inoculate the American public against anti Semitism by telling the story. And there was this bedrock assumption that learning about the Holocaust was going to inoculate people against anti Semitism. And what I found is that, you know, that we're just still working on that assumption. But what's interesting is that, you know, this, this has been going, the Holocaust education has been going on for 50 years in this country. And certainly in the past 30 years has become tremendously robust with the, you know, it's been 30 years since the opening of the uh, Holocaust museum in Washington, um, you know, and there's been enormous amount of, you know, uh, of awareness and and public campaigns and, and states that have passed these mandates. But what's amazing to me is that, you know, no matter how you measure it, levels of anti-Semitism in America today are much higher than they were 30 years ago, you know, when these museums opened and when these mandates were being passed. You know, and correlation yeah. doesn't imply causation. I'm basically asking, is it working? And one of the things I found out is that really the data are not there. There really is not a lot of, con- there, there really is almost no convincing data that Holocaust education impacts anti-Semitism. Um, it, it has other positive effects, but, you know, making people less anti-Semitic is not something that anyone has convincingly measured. Um, and in fact, there was a large study, not in this country, in the UK, there was a lar- the largest study of, of, of the impact of Holocaust education, um, which was like 8,000 students who had all been through this mandatory Holocaust education curriculum. What was amazing is that there was one question none of these students could answer, which is why did the Nazis target the Jews? And when the researchers asked them this question in focus groups, the students' answers came from Nazi propaganda. You know, oh, well, I Mm. guess they they must have taken the – I guess they took the Germans' money. You know, it must be because the Jews are rich. You know, oh, they stabbed them in the back during the First World War. I mean, it's, like, unbelievable, right? I mean, it's, like, wow. Wow. And, you know, and so I'm looking into, like, why this is happening. And what I discovered in my deep dive into American Holocaust education was – this sort of massive appropriation of Jewish history toward universal ends. Where the story of the Holocaust was being told as this case study in morality, where it was being taken Mm -hmm. out of any kind of context. It was like isolated from the rest of Jewish history, certainly, in many cases, even isolated from European history, and just studied as sort of this like life lesson I couldn't even think of any other historical episode that's taught that way, where you just take out like one thing and you look at it as by itself with no context and then try to draw lessons from it, you know, and and to turn it into a morality play. And what I did think, though, and I don't quite exactly say this directly in the article, is that, you know, this is what's interesting about it is that this is very consistent with what non-Jewish societies have done with Jewish experiences for millennia, which is, you know, appropriate a Jewish story. Say that it's really about everyone and then regard wow. living Jews as irrelevant. I mean, like, you know, the church did this for thousands of years. You know, we're the new Israel. You know, Islam did this. You know, we have the real prophecy. And I think that, like, I think yeah. that that is comfortable for people on some unconscious level that they're not even aware of. So, that, And I mean, now and Palestinians
0: quite... are doing that with, with Holocaust inversions. Palestinians are, are doing that. I mean, and, and, Israel, and the or, way, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I was looking specifically
1: at American Holocaust education. Um, but what I found is that, like, you know, what there's this total erasure of Jews who are alive today, um, you know, because this they tell this story. It's basically, and what students learn from this is anti-Semitism is something that happened in continental Europe between 1933 and 1945, and now it is over. And it consisted of genocide. So, I mean, basically there's a couple of effects of this. Number one is, you know, Anything short of genocide is kind of no big deal when it comes to anti-Semitism, right? It's like, why am I going to go complain that somebody rammed me with a shopping cart and yelled slurs at me? Like, I'm not in a mass grave. I guess I'm fine, right? So that's one effect, you know, and and I mentioned before the premise that, you know, people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. One of those stories is Holocaust education, because, you know, you go to a... A museum, or you learn about this in school, and you know, hopefully, you feel terrible about what happened, but you feel great about yourself because you're like, I would never do this. Like, yeah, you probably wouldn't industrially murder six million people. Good for you. But the, yes. the real problem, though, is the total erasure of living Jews today. I mean, because you know, you go to these museums, and generally, what happens? Holocaust education in in most of these contexts, like, you learn about the Holocaust. That stops at 1945. Jews basically disappear after 1945 because then what they do is they move on to like other genocides let's learn about other genocides let's learn about other human rights violations and you know i mean look there's a lot of reasons why we should be learning about those things but what i think is amazing about it is that you know the nazi project was not just about murdering six million jews it was about erasing jewish civilization why are we participating in that erasure And it really is an erasure to I remember I was in the Dallas Holocaust Museum at a teacher conference and I remember talking to one of the docents there about, you know, when students come here, what do they usually ask you? And he said, you know what they ask? They ask, are there still Jews alive today? Because if you went to this museum, you kind of wouldn't know.
0: That says a lot. That says a lot.
1: And, and, you know, that, that basically Jews are being used as this prop where, and, and basically, and, and we only learn about Jews during this period where Jews have no agency, have no power, and that's sort of what's being celebrated. You know, it's like Jews are here, like basically Jews have one job in this story, which is to die. And that teaches us a nice lesson about humanity. Probably not a it coincidence, feels like a very that's, that's kind parallel. of the core of Christianity, yeah. too, right? I mean,
0: sorry, go ahead. No, it's a very feminine parallel. Where if you're the damsel of distress, that's fine. And you know, when you have agency, uh, there's backlash. And you know, in in, yeah. in in people love dead Jews. You devote one of the longest chapters to a Christian, Varian Frey, who talks about how saving, rescuing Jewish artists and intellectuals was the high point of his life, but it was the lowest point of their lives. They wanted to forget. And I mean, that that's that was. A very interesting thing and um I just saw there's a Netflix movie about that. So um Yeah. That that should be interesting. Have you seen that? Was
1: it good? I actually haven't yet. No, I haven't. I, although I I've been in touch with the woman who wrote it um who reached out oh, to me. She, wow. Yeah, yeah. So um I do know about it, but I haven't had a chance to see it yet.
0: Yeah, that all of this to me, I can't not talk to you about the ICA problem because I think that the things you've said about that are maybe some of the most important things you've ever talked about. In my other professional life, mindset is everything. Victims often have shame, they make excuses for their oppressors, like little kids who blame themselves if their parents get a divorce, even though they of course had Mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. And when I first heard you talk about the Ica problem, I felt like a riddle in my mind was slowly being solved regarding the cause of Jewish guilt and self-flagellation. Do we have an ICA problem in which we believe anti-Semitism is our own fault? And, you know, to what extent? I get that, yes, non-Jews like to congratulate themselves for being heroes. I get that. That's that's human. Uh, I'm more critical of ourselves. Maybe I have an ICA problem. But can we talk about this and how we're showing up with this that's part of the problem? And, I mean, even Reform rabbis have acknowledged that you know, we, we've done tikkun olam gone wild in some cases. It's like we've lost track of the basic tenets. If your religion or any relationship involves self-abandonment, it's a toxic relationship. So um, I know we don't have a lot of time here. Uh, I could talk to you for hours. But um, tell us about the ICA problem and then um, we'll go to the lightning round. Sure. So,
1: um, yeah, so the Echa problem, um, I, I, this is, it, it doesn't appear oh, in this sorry. book. I'm, I'm impressed that you tracked this down. It's, uh, it was uh, an academic essay I wrote years ago, but, um, yeah, this, uh, and I and I gave a speech about it, too, that I guess you can find online. Um, the Echa problem, uh, I named after Echa, the uh, Book of Lamentations in, in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible, and it's, you know, the Book of Lamentations is about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BCE, but what's amazing about the the Book of Lamentations, about the the Book of Echa, is that it doesn't blame the Babylonians; it blames the Jews. And this is something you find throughout the the Tanakh and all and throughout the Hebrew Bible. There's this prophetic cycle where, you know, there's this idea that these other nations that attack the Jews, um, and it's not true in every case, but that there's this idea that the these other nations that attack the Jews, that they don't have agency. It's in fact, it's like the hand of God. So, like, God is using the Babylonians as a way of punishing the people because the whole premise is that Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed because of the Jewish people's sins. That's a foundational ideal idea, idea in Jewish culture. Is this? It's in the Tanakh. Um, it's in the Hebrew Bible. And if anything, the Talmud and the rabbinic sources make it even worse because then the temple's destroyed again by the Romans. And so, for that generation, that's very resonant. And uh, I mean, you know, there's all these conversations in the in the Talmud where they say, you know, like, oh, the temple was destroyed because, you know, we failed to keep the Sabbath. The temple was destroyed because of causeless hatred between among the people. The temple was destroyed because, you know, we didn't educate the children. Not one of these brilliant rabbis ever says the temple was destroyed because of the enemy's superior weaponry. Doesn't Mm -hmm. come up. No, it's like this, this view of the world where it's like, you know, these other, uh, you know, these enemy nations, you know, which have their own reasons for these conquests. That those are that they don't have their own agency. That those people are like this hand of God that's punishing the Jews for their sins. Now you might think we got rid of this idea in modern times, and there's actually kind of this. um, The modern Hebrew poet Bialik, uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik, writes this long poem about the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, where he sort of is like rejecting this idea, and he's in, in this epic poem, he's like making, you know, he's mocking the Jews who go to to pray to God after this, to recite the confessional for their sins. He's mocking them and saying, you know, oh, these people are fools. You know, they think this happened because of their sins. It really happened because they didn't fight back. Here's yeah. what it, and, and this becomes like this clarion call to Zionism, right? I mean, this becomes, you know, one of this you know ideas of Zionism is self-defense, of course. What's really interesting to, about it to me, though, is that, be all, that seems like this revolutionary idea, you know, yeah, the Jews shouldn't rely on God. The Jews should take matters into their own hands and fight back. But it's actually not that revolutionary because he's still blaming the Jews for the pogrom. He's still saying that it was the Jews' fault for not fighting back. And what's really interesting is that he's wrong. Jews did fight back in Kishinev. And so what's amazing to me is how this idea is so deep in Jewish culture that even people who have very little knowledge about, you know, the, these are people who don't have a like, deep Jewish education. It's like so part of Jewish, Jewish life that it's like it, 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 it's, it's part of every conversation we have about anti-Semitism, every conversation we have about Israel. And it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum. You know, it's like Israel is attacked because it was too kind to its enemies or, you know, or it was too kind to, the, you know, whoever the people who are attacking them or right. Israel was attacked because it wasn't kind enough.
0: Right you either know way, I need to either get way,
1: it's something that we did, right, or something that the Jews did or that Israel did, right, and that to me is like fascinating, and I understand why we have this attitude, and by i say we I say like really just as humans, right like there's this need to um what's interesting is that you know there's this impulse, it's a way of taking control of a situation where you have very little control, you know where exactly. there's where there's no logic, to... yes.
0: You can think that there's something that you're doing, that you're
1: controlling it. It gives you a sense of control. It's interesting, though, because the more common human impulse is to blame other people, right? I mean, that's the whole source of anti-Semitism and scapegoating, right, is that my problems are not my fault. My problems are somebody else's fault, right? I mean, that's a much more common human instinct. And in Jewish culture, we have this, you know, it still exists, as you mentioned. I mean, it's funny, you know, you think about it with... It often exists with people who in societies, uh, people in a society that have the less power the person has, perhaps the more likely they are to believe that, right? Like you said, like the child who thinks that it's their fault that their parents got divorced or, you know, the person who's abused by their spouse, right? I mean, it's often the people who are, you know, have less, you know, to whom the society gives less agency tend to use that psychological recourse to those kinds of thoughts. We could
0: spend a whole hour on the Eicha problem. And I I, I want to get an expert on Jewish trauma on here sometime because I feel that that is the missing thing there is that, you know, we have this paradox of where we're extroverts in Hollywood, but we're introverts in our ethnic identity. We have no problem speaking out in a big way for Black Lives Matter, but then some people are hiding in the closet about their Zionism. And this is, this isn't just about what happened in the last year. This is about what's been happening for thousands of years and, and your books just really connect the dots and just show how it's it's not like it's not like ten thousand things happening. It's the same damn thing happening again and again. You know, it's the Correct. same cycles. And um wow, wow, just so great, so great. How can people learn more and support your work?
1: Um you know, look, I, I I don't hang out much on so, on social media, basically just because I don't have time. Uh, you know, in addition to writing these books and I have teaching, I, I have four children, so they you know <laughs> I you know I have to, I have to make decisions about how I spend my time. But um, yeah, I mean I have a website which is com. Um, I do a lot of public speaking around the country, so you know you Google my name and you could see if I'm coming somewhere near you. Um, I also have uh, I have a podcast that I created about a year ago that's like a spinoff of this book. It's called Adventures with Dead Jews, and it's uh, totally different stories that don't appear in the book. You know, I have this Atlantic article that came out in May about Holocaust education, and uh, People Love Dead Jews, obviously, is the book we've been talking about. And uh, I also have five novels that I wrote before that, which are way more fun than People Love Dead Jews. In fact, they're kind <laughs> of the opposite. Um, my, my previous book I wrote before People Love Dead Jews was it's exactly the opposite. It's a book called Eternal Life, and it's about a Jewish woman who can't die and has been alive for 2,000 years.
0: I'm working my way to that. I've, I've been doing, like, you know, a binge, a binge reading session of Dara Horn this last month, so I, I will be getting to that soon. <laughs> yeah, Let's have a fun lightning round. Um, you down with sure. that? Uh, mm-hmm. So why, why are you proud to be a Jew?
1: Because I feel like I have this access to thousands of years of the past, that I have a I have a language and a framework to treat it like not like history but like memory, and I, I consider that a gift in a world where we think we only live in the present.
0: Who are your spiritual role models? Or I'll just say, who are your Jewish role models? Um, my parents.
1: <laughs> So my parents are Susan and Matthew Horn, and they're amazing. Um, so, and, you know, my mother is a, is a scholar of Jewish, you know, she's a PhD in Jewish education. And so she was my role model for how to engage with different types of learners and how to sort of, you know, make an important story accessible to lots of different people. And uh, my parents also took me around the world. And everywhere we went, we were looking at Jewish communities around the world in, you know, in addition to being in Israel many times. And so I've learned a lot from them about no, not just you know how to be a parent for my own children, but how to be a Jewish educator.
0: What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to the Jewish people?
1: Um, I you know there's this deep discomfort with this you know uh, dark turn that things have taken in the United States and you know the last you know five or ten years. Um, and I think we spend too much time debating the reasons for it and pointing fingers about it instead of changing the conversation into something that actually can activate the goodwill of our neighbors. Cause there is our, we, we are very fortunate to live in a place where there's, we have a lot of neighbors who have an enormous amount of goodwill toward the Jewish community. What
0: makes you mad?
1: Uh, what doesn't make me mad?
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm uh you know, I, I, um, It makes me mad when people ignore cognitive dissonance and pretend that things aren't happening when they are.
0: Yeah. For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember?
1: That there are fun ways to tell a story and to get people excited about the wonderful ideas and stories and books and traditions that we are so so fortunate to have inherited from our ancestors and that that exploring that that vast um that vast edifice of civilization can
0: actually be a whole lot of fun you definitely pull that off uh and lastly what's your outlook on the future are you hopeful
1: i mean people who know me personally will tell you that i'm an eternal pessimist and i'm like the prophet of doom and yeah, I'm a prophet of doom, um, but I I look at the American Jewish community today and I see an enormous amount of creativity and potential that I think is only starting to be realized. And I think that there's an amazing future ahead of us um, for the Jewish people, but also specifically for the American Jewish community, because I am starting to see people being galvanized toward creating new institutions and building a new
0: Jewish future. You were talking about the Joshua generation to West Point recently, and that was great as well. Looking forward to the future. Dara, I want to thank you for being with us today and also for everything you do to advocate for our community. You started some really important conversations, and I hope you come back again soon to continue those conversations.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and for
0: uh, creating a space for these conversations. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll have Rabbi Danny Schiff to discuss the future of the reform and conservative movements in America and how our collective community needs are ever-evolving in the digital age. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV Channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.